0: Welcome to HB Media Minute, a podcast from Haynes and Boone that focuses on legal trends impacting the media and entertainment industry, intellectual property, and First Amendment law. Today, we're going to talk about some recent Texas Supreme Court rulings of particular relevance to media companies. The rulings impact defamation and copyright law, and also the Texas Citizens Participation Act, the state's anti-slap law that establishes key First Amendment protections for media companies and for citizens. We're joined today by an excellent guide, Haynes and Boone partner, Ben Meshes, who is co-chair of the firm's litigation practice group and is a leading appellate lawyer in Texas. Ben has argued many major cases at the Texas Supreme Court and also previously clerked on the court. So it'll be great to get his impressions on what seems like it's been an active media law docket for the Texas Supreme Court. But a little bit of housekeeping before we get started, our usual disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. And with that aside, Ben, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Nathan. Uh, It's a pleasure to join you today.
0: Well, great. Let's get started today with a case, Hogan, if I'm pronouncing correctly, Hogan v. Zoani, I believe. And, and the question there, it involves defamation. And the question is whether noncompliance with the Defamation Mitigation Act's notice requirements can result in dismissal, or does it only... Trigger a defendant's right to abate the case. Before we get going, Ben, can you explain what the Defamation Mitigation Act is all about?
1: Absolutely, Nathan. Uh, It is a statute that the Texas legislature adopted along with a handful of other states, I think three other states, that provides a mechanism for a defamation victim to mitigate any perceived damages or injuries. And critical to this statute's operation is that it allows a plaintiff to bring to the defendant, alleged defendant's uh, attention, defamatory statements, so that the defendant can take corrective action and mitigate injuries that might flow from those statements. Um, and th- that notice provision is really the critical question at issue in, in the Hogan case
0: is, and is the notice provision aimed at trying to quell litigation if it can be worked out somewhat amicably is that sort of the goal of the of the mitigation act?
1: Yeah I mean it's really to do to do yeah to try to find a way to keep disputes out of court to provide a defendant who might have, might have made a defamatory statement with a, an opportunity to correct or modify that statement um, and to to mitigate those uh, damages or injuries that the plaintiff felt. So it really is a notice provision. And for our listeners, uh, it may be, may be interesting to think about a, uh, something like a consumer protection statute um, that exists in Texas called the DTPA, which says before you bring a lawsuit, you need to send. Uh, the defendant notice that there's been there's been a problem, and it really is designed to mitigate, put the defendant on notice, narrow the scope of issues in dispute and litigation.
0: How, how have lower courts interpreted the notice requirements of the DMA?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question, Nathan, because w- what this is an issue that has been percolating actually both in the state and federal courts. Uh, for some number of years. And the way these cases had come out previously, most courts had held that the written notice requirement was, and here is the critical language, it says that a plaintiff quote, may maintain an action for defamation only if the plaintiff makes a timely and sufficient request for clarification, correction, or retraction. And that only if language is really the critical language in the statute. And what had happened uh, in the lower courts and, and also in the federal courts, generally, is the courts had said, we don't we're not going to read this statute as, re- as requiring dismissal as this being a mandatory provision, an obligation that the plaintiff must do in order to maintain the claim, but rather they read it as an abatement provision. And several several state courts uh, across the uh, across the state had held that. Uh, a number of federal district courts had held that. But interestingly, uh, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit had treated as, treated the statute as a dismissal statute. And then the Houston Court of Appeals that issued the Hogan decision below had made the same hold- holding. One other thing, Nathan, that I think is quite interesting is that the Texas Supreme Court, has had a really hard time resolving this issue. We'll probably talk about that in a minute. But in the in the prior Supreme Court term, 2019 to 2020 term, the court ostensibly took a case called Warner Brothers to decide this issue, but they ultimately punted and didn't reach the issue and resolved the case on the grounds that the, the, of whether or not the notice was actually sufficient to invoke the triggers of the statute. So they, it's something they've struggled with quite a bit.
0: In in abatement, I gather would just mean that uh, the case is temporarily suspended. The plaintiff can cure the lack of notice, and then once that's done, can then you know resume the litigation. Is 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 that right?
1: Yes, that's correct. There's really two consequences of it. Uh, One is exactly what you say, which is it gives the plaintiff an opportunity to make the written notice, and then the plaintiff can reinstitute the litigation, restart the litigation. And the second thing it does is if if you're uh, you don't in, follow the procedures uh, for putting the defendant on notice, you can lose your right to exemplary damages, punitive damages. And so it does really play a mitigation role in that respect as well.
0: So back to Hogan, what did the Texas Supreme Court, uh, how did they interpret this and resolve these these lingering issues?
1: Yeah. So it's a really complex answer to that question. I think probably it would help to start out by framing what the issue before the court was and and that it's really this under the act um, a plaintiff quote must may maintain an action for defamation only if the plaintiff makes a timely and sufficient request for correction clarification or retraction or if the defendant makes such a correction so the question in this case before the court and what had been uh, at issue in the lower courts was what does maintain only if mean? One view is that it's a mandatory requirement that results in dismissal of a suit if there is no compliance with the statute. Another view is that it's just a notice provision that does not foreclose a defamation claim. And if notice is lacking, the defendant can evoke the abatement process that we were talking about a moment ago, and the plaintiff may be foreclosed from pursuing exemplary or punitive damages. So what did the court do here? Well, unfortunately for, for parties and uh, lawyers in this field, didn't, the court did not provide complete clarity on how to construe the statute. And that's because we had um, what is sort of an unusual thing at our state Supreme Court, which we ended up with a 5-4 um, majority judgment, but no majority opinion. And so there was a plurality opinion written by Justice Devine. Uh, which uh, garnered a, t- a total of, of four votes. And that the plurality would, would have held that the best way to read the statute is that abatement is the proper remedy and the plaintiff loses exemplary damages. What the f- five judges agreed on in terms of a disposition of this case is that the, the defendant here waived the right to invoke the abatement provisions by only seeking dismissal and not abatement. And that, that's the that's sort of the bare holding of the case, as it were. But there was no um, majority, as I said, on the proper interpretation of the, of the statute. And that is because there, were, there was a, a concurring opinion by Justice Boyd, who, while he agreed with the abatement disposition, would take an entirely different read of the statute. Um, what Justice Boyd would say is, dismissal is required if the notice itself is an efficient Insufficient or, or untimely, but abatement is required if there's no written notice at all, and that was based on a very technical and uh, in, statutory interpretation, um, where he went through various uh, rules of construction to reach that conclusion, and that was that was that opinion was was only by Justice Boyd, and then there was an opinion joined uh, by two other justices, written by the Chief Justice Nathan Hacht, that said that to maintain only if means non-compliance results in uh, dismissal. And so we, what we have here is we have an unresolved issue about an interpretation of a pretty major statute. It's something that has obviously divided the courts below. It's an issue that is that is the judges have obviously, obviously struggled with two terms in a row. And it wouldn't surprise me if it winds its way back to the court uh, and, in a future term.
0: So, so given that kind of... Complicated posture. I mean, w- with this holding, does that really change the state of play much, uh, or do we need to really wait for further kind of jurisprudence on this? Yeah,
1: you know, I think I think we'll need to wait for further jurisprudence on exactly how to approach it. One one thing that is clear, though, and that is an important takeaway here, just with respect to the statute, is that the if you were a defendant in a case and you want to make sure that the plaintiff cannot pursue exemplary damages, and to force them to abate the case in order to get notice of what the claims are, you do need to invoke the statute's provisions uh, to do that. If you don't, the court what the court held here is by failing to raise abatement, you waive it. And so that is an important takeaway. In terms of the dismissal issue uh, that it was critical in this case, that is still fair game. And as I mentioned, the courts, including the federal courts, are somewhat divided on that point.
0: It just just a uh, kind of a small follow-up question, and then we'll move on to some, some of the other important recent opinions. How is that de- – the de- Defamation Mitigation Act invoked? Is it, is it a letter that's sent out that's pointing out the problem, or how, how do defendants invoke it?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question because it varies by state. But under our, our state statute, it's invoked by – it can be done by letter, a letter mm-hmm. of formal notice uh, to a party – and that is really important because, um, in some states, and uh, I think it's the three other states that adopted the statute, notice can actually be triggered by the filing of a lawsuit. And so that res- a lot of these issues don't come up in those other states because everyone agrees that a law- the defendant would be on notice when the lawsuit is filed. And so it provides a mechanism to fix these issues, to identify what the conduct and issue is, and the defendant can either correct or make a retraction or whatnot. But here, the legislature explicitly redlined out that language meaning that this particular statutory issue uh, comes up uniquely under the Texas version of the statute.
0: Thanks for that overview. Let's move now to some recent rulings involving the Texas Citizens Participation Act, the state's anti-SLAP law. And I thought maybe we'd start here by if you could just remind listeners about the TCPA um quick sure. overview of that thanks
1: sure of course so the TCPA is a is a statute that is i think would be viewed as controversial in many circles but it provides a mechanism for early dismissal of a case when the claims asserted arise out of the defendant's exercise of protected first amendment activities for example freedom of speech freedom of association uh freedom of assembly and what it what it does is it sets up a procedure by which a defendant in a case like that can move to have the court dismiss a lawsuit for a failure to make a prima facie case. This is a it's it's a novel procedure in our Texas uh, procedural posture because most of the time cases are not resolved at, on a motion to dismiss in, in our state court system. Unlike in federal courts, where there's 12b6 and things of that nature you don't have that here. So it is it is pretty different way of getting to it on the marriage resolution of a case early, early on.
0: So l- let's turn to some a couple of the recent cases. One is is style Montelongo versus Abrea. And, I, and as I understand it, invo- that case involves a, a real estate investor made famous by the A&E television series Flip This House. And the other one is Kinder Morgan versus Scurry County. And I, as I understand it, the issue here is if, if plaintiffs Amend their claims. Does that impact the deadline for a defendant to file a motion to dismiss? Um, so, Ben, how did the court resolve that issue in these cases?
1: Yeah, it's it's well. The way the court resolved it was was as follows: if if the plaintiff amends uh, his or her complaint, and let me just make a, a side point here. This comes up a lot because as a case moves along and discovery happens, you know, the plaintiff may discover new conduct, new allegations, new theories that it wants to pursue. And as a result, um, you see late amendments in the litigation process. And so in both of these cases, what is at issue is, are new factual allegations, new theories, new parties do they retrigger a defendant's right to invoke the TCPA's dismissal provisions? And what is super important here to understand is that to to raise the the TCPA's dismissal right, you have to make a motion within sixty days of service of the of the petition. And I mean, obviously, in these cases, uh, there have been multiple. The case has been on file for a very long time. There have been multiple. Uh, amendments of the petitions. And so this was, uh, one of these was very close to trial. Other was very pretty long into the process. And so the question is, can a defendant invoke the TCPA if you're that late into the case? And the answer is yes, you can. If you timely bring a TCPA motion within 60 days of a new claims asserting new factual allegations, they do restart the deadline, new parties, new facts, new legal theories. Um, But if it's really just asserting the same essential facts, no, a defendant will not be entitled to restart the TCPA process.
0: Because that's, um, I would think, somewhat blurry as to whether it qualifies as as sort of sufficiently distinct um, to trigger a new deadline, are are defendants, do you think, well served to – to file a, a motion to dismiss within the 60 days, even, even in the face of amended claims?
1: Yeah, I think if there's a colorable basis for saying that there's a new theory, certainly if you have new parties, there's a new cause of action. Um, if you can argue it's a different set of essential facts, I think defendants are well well positioned to make those kinds of arguments and to pursue that strategy for sure.
0: So, how do you taken together? How do you think these two cases will impact uh, TCPA litigation?
1: Well, I think in in two ways. I think you'll see them later on in the litigation process. Uh, We typically you see them happen really, really early because they have to be filed so soon after the case is filed. And the other thing is, I think it will cause plaintiffs to be extraordinarily careful on how they plead their cases. Uh, You know, especially if they're going to file an amendment, they're going to want to stick to the basic outline of facts they previously had. And if they're going to add new causes of action, they want to make really clear, this is not a new theory. It's an extension of existing theory uh, and things of that nature.
0: And and this is sort of a basic question, Ben, but you alluded to it earlier. It sounds like motion to dismiss is not that common in state court. So if you're... I mean, if you uh, – it's a pretty extraordinary remedy, I guess, if you're able to dismiss a case versus facing, you know, whatever the normal course of, of, a, of a lawsuit is, the full life of a lawsuit. I mean, it's a big difference if you can invoke that remedy, I would think.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a huge difference because you're basically looking at uh, – do you end up going to trial on a, a new set of claims? Do you have to do some discovery Um File summary judgment motions. Mm-hmm. It's a very long process. Whereas under the TCPA, there are pretty strict deadlines not only to file the motion, but for the court to rule. And yeah. so it really fundamentally changes the landscape of the litigation, and that that's for sure.
0: Okay, let's. Um, I want to ask you about a recent case involving Landry's, the uh, the restaurant chain. Um, in in the issue with this case. Was uh, involves the judicial proceedings privilege and the attorney immunity doctrine, and and the issue here it's an interesting one is whether an attorney's statements to the media, are repeating his client's allegation, uh, if those are are uh, subject to judicial proceedings proceedings privilege and the attorney attorney immunity doctrine. Um, can you talk a little bit about this case?
1: Absolutely. This is, a, as you said, a really very interesting case. And what the court held here, in an opinion by Justice Blacklock, is that the neither the judicial uh, proceedings privilege nor the attorney immunity privilege protect an attorney's out-of-court statements in the media that just repeat the client's allegations. And what the court rested on is that, although it is certainly the case that speaking to the media as lawyers, occasionally do, whether it's to newspaper or television reporters, may advance the client's publicity goals. It is not really core to the office of being an attorney. In other words, it's not part of your professional training and skill and your authority as an attorney. And so it doesn't trigger these very um, distinct immunity doctrines, which let me just mention both the judicial proceedings privilege and attorney immunity privilege or doctrines are extraordinarily robust if they're applicable and they could just completely eliminate a claim or a lawsuit. And so they do have a very strong impact on a case. And so the court here wanted to make sure that it was very, uh, careful and construing that doctrine and when, when it does and does not apply.
0: In the type of claim it would, does it typically, what would it typically protect attorneys against? Defamation claims? Defamation
1: claims. Yeah. Yeah. It would be any, any sort of defamation disparagement type claims. Right.
0: And I'm curious before we get, before we uh, continue, what would you say are attorneys expectations uh, typically? Would, Would it be that statements to the media are subject to these protections? Or do you think, most attorneys operated under the assumption that, you know, when talking to the media, it, we may not be subject to these protections.
1: Uh. You know, it's a really interesting question. I, I think for the most part, lawyers don't think a whole lot about it, mm. <laughs> about whether they're going to be sued. It's pretty rare for a lawyer to be sued for an out-of-court statement. This is kind of an unusual set of facts involving Landry's. Um, and, and the plaintiff's lawyers work for uh, an interest group organization, Um, And so you had some other things going on here. I think most lawyers don't think a lot about it. I also think most lawyers are pretty careful when they speak to the media. And the reason they're careful has less to do with the potential exposure to liability, Nathan, than it does for how um, the court might perceive it or how one's client might perceive you speaking out. So uh, lawyers tend to be careful. They don't want to prejudge the merits. They don't want to be viewed as putting uh, untoward pressure uh, on the courts, but they do want to get attention on the issues, and I think that's mainly what what lawyers try to do. Um, and that's why often you see very carefully framed statements from lawyers, or even companies that say we just simply don't comment on lit- pending litigation. And a lot of lawyers end up following uh, that same approach.
0: So, what did the how did the court land on this issue?
1: Yeah, so they held that the the neither the Neither the privilege of judicial proceedings or the attorney immunity doctrine applied, Uh, but what they did is they sent the case back to be resolved in the lower courts because the reality here, and this touches on a question you just raised, Nathan, is the lawyers likely have other defenses to a defamation claim, just standard defenses that could exist, And in this case, the lower court did not resolve this issue. The lower court resolved it purely on the issue of the application of these two, the privilege and the immunity doctrine uh, that were at issue. And so those issues will be resolved. And that is what would happen in most of these cases now going forward, is that you would simply litigate the defenses on the merits that you might have to defamation. It was true. It was not defamatory uh, and those sorts of things.
0: I mean, it seems fair to suggest that, talking to the press in some ways is part of a quote-unquote legal proceeding. Do you think, if I may ask, that the court uh, resolved this one correctly?
1: I do think the court got this one right. And that is because of the force of the two doctrines at issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those have been traditionally interpreted to be fairly narrow. So if you say something in a courtroom, that's an entirely different animal. And it's a pretty easy line to draw. So courts don't get in the business of trying to define the parameters of Certain out-of-court statements. It's just easy to have the in-court versus out-of-court line to draw, and it's a black li- uh, le- line, and it's fairly easy to enforce and police in the lower courts.
0: In that, and that would extend to pleadings. I guess if you were to repeat your client's allegedly defamatory statement in a in some sort of motion, that wouldn't be subject to that. Those the immunities and protections would exist for for that as well. I I would think.
1: That's right. And then what the lawyer is faced with, the issue then is if there are statements that turn out to be untrue. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously the courts have authority uh, via sanctions and, and other disciplinary authority if the lawyer is saying something that is not founded in fact or made in, a statement made in bad faith.
0: Then I think we've got time for a summary of one more recent Case it's uh, it's Jim Olive Photography versus University of Houston. Um, it involves a uh, it's a copyright case. The plaintiff here, I believe, claimed the University of Houston was using its photographs without consent. Um, t- tell me about this case.
1: Now, this is a really interesting case because it's a rare case in which a state court issued a decision um, under the federal copyright laws. Uh, most of these cases, for a variety of different reasons, end up. Being resolved in federal court, and that is because federal courts typically have jurisdiction over Copyright Act claims, um, because there's preemption that often applies, uh, and doctrines of that nature. But the reason why this case winds up in state court is because the plaintiff here is a photographer, took some pictures of the University of Houston campus, the skyline of Houston, and then the, he alleges that the University of Houston state actor put those photographs up on their website, misappropriated them. And he says instead of articulating a copyright infringement claim for damages because this plaintiff faced an immunity, a sovereign immunity problem, he alleged that the University of Houston uh, violated both the state and federal constitution's prohibition on the taking of private property. And what the question presented here was is, is a copyright infringement allegation when it is made against a state actor? Is that also a taking of property? And the court helped know that it is not that it, it is because you're not taking own possession, ownership, of, or control of that original photograph, but you're just appropriating the copyright in it, and and it doesn't really interfere with your ownership of that of that photograph. There's not a takings
0: claim. It means it's the sort of thing where state actors were breathing a sigh of relief from this. It sounds like a pretty novel set of circumstances. I don't know how how commonly it would come up.
1: Yeah, I don't think this would be a common issue that would come up, and I'm not sure that state actors were sitting on the edge of their seat waiting for a decision on this. But I do think what is interesting about this case is it is a it's a very lengthy treatment of both the federal and state takings uh, provisions under under those state the, those respective constitutional provisions. And in fact, there's a very interesting concurrence written by Justice Busby, joined by two other judges. And and Justice Buzzi makes an important point here, which is that we often think of um, Texas as being unique and having our own way of doing things. Well, that's also true about our Constitution. Uh, While we have a takings clause that's much like the federal takings clause, the state takings clause also protects property that has been either, quote, damaged, not just appropriated, but damaged or destroyed. And... Uh, Justice Busby writes separately to point out that while those provisions of the state takings clause were not raised in this case, they do present different kinds of issues. And I think it brings, just brings to the fore that Texas does have an aggressive approach to protecting pro- uh, property rights, and it's embedded in the Constitution a much broader protection than might exist under federal law.
0: Oh, great. Well, Ben, thank you for okay. that overview. Really, really helpful. I appreciate you joining today. Before we sign off, I would like to remind everyone that you can find our podcast and other content from our IP and media and entertainment practices at haynesboon.com. And a heads up that you can also find this and other Haynes and Boone podcasts on most popular podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Thank you, and I hope you will join us for the next episode of HB Media Minute.